So I'm Dr Naomi Murphy. I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist and I spent 20-odd years working with um, people who offend in prison, but alongside that also worked with high performers, um, trying to make sure that all of their life's well-rounded, not just their work life. How do you get into prisons? seems very... It's niche, isn't it? It's very niche. I think when I did my psychology degree, all the stuff I was interested in was all the more bizarre acts, all the more bizarre parts of human behaviour and wanting, I think, really wanting to understand why do people do these things that seem to be so crazy on the face of it. And actually, the more you understand about people, the easier it is to then... Um, the more, the more that you see of them, the easier it is to make sense of why they are as they are as adults. Mm. What has been like one of the, I hate to make it sound very like Q&A, but I've never been inside of a prison, but I know mm -hmm. people that have worked in prisons mm -hmm. as corrections officers and yep. whatever else. Uh, what is like the biggest challenge to like get through to somebody in that situation? It seems like if I'm coming to see you, say, and you're in your office yeah and you know that i have daddy issues mommy issues separation issues whatever i'm having a I'm, I'm coming to you with my issue so i feel like those types of individuals might be extremely guarded got it in one there i mean that's that's the challenge is is mm. really prisons are full of people who are very frightened except for these macho posturing to cover all that up but the reality is they're scared they're scared of authority figures and as a psychologist or a prison officer prison prison guard you of course are in a position of authority over them so then they don't trust you um, because they don't trust people generally but especially don't trust authority figures and they've got the heckles up and i suppose their their general approach is to want to be quite hostile towards you and of course what that often pulls from people you know if someone says to you off oh, fuck off the typical approach the, the typical response you'll get in prison is somebody responding by saying you know don't don't you tell me to fuck off you, right, right right you do one whereas actually if you start thinking about the fact the person's frightened um that's what you focus on is you know they're being hostile because they're trying to protect themselves and if you reassure them that you're not expecting them to just trust you right off right off the bat that you understand that they need to get to know you then they start thinking oh, actually something a bit different is going on in this interaction um but that's not the norm in prison they don't normally get that that kind of response they're usually met with hostility back because that's familiar to people what's like the the uh, the the outcome the desired outcome then like when you because when i go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist in their office i'm trying to work through something mm -hmm. is it more towards like they're maybe a sex offender and you're trying to work out why and then work it out of them or is it yeah i mean everyone i've worked with really has been in prison for a serious violent crime or sexually violent crime so yeah the typical offenses were murder rape um mutilation of a body um or paedophilia those so we've talked about the most serious of offenses but actually it's hurt people literally hurt people and so what normally happens in prison is they pick up from the point where the person's offended and they focus on all right let's let's 
stop thinking about what you've done that's bad um, and that's the starting point whereas our starting point the approach that I took in there to the work that I was doing was to tr actually try and understand why the person was hurting in the first place why were they then lashing out and if you've been uh, you know abused throughout your childhood don't feel like society's interested in you, hasn't got a stake in you, then really the rules of society don't apply to you either. So part of it was about kind of like helping them understand why they were taking, why they'd set themselves outside of society on the back of childhood, building an alliance with them, and then starting to learn that actually they could be, they, there could be people who could care about them, that could like them, that could try and understand them rather than just reject them and push them away, which has been their experience. Mm. Do you have any sort of say over whether or not they get reintroduced into society? Because I know if you talk to some of these people, I'm assuming, obviously, you get a vibe that, okay, this person probably shouldn't be released next month or whatever the case may be because they've not rehabilitated at all or they've not, they've demonstrated something that proves that they might be a risk. Well, the project that I was, um, that I was approached to, to, to lead was actually aimed at treat, providing treatment for people who were considered to be psychopaths and untreatable psychopaths. So they were hopeless cases of the British prison system. So they were excluded from any treatment that was available in prison. Lots of them had been living in segregation conditions for, for years. So that's kind of like 23 hour lockup mm -hmm. and only out one, you know, one, one individual at a time. The, the, they would do five years of treatment. At the end of that, they're not going to be released into society. They're all on life sentences, so they have to serve a minimum amount of time in the British prison system, so a tariff, that's called. And even if they reach their tariff, they have to then prove that they're not a risk to the public before the parole board would let them out. So we, when I first started there, we had men who'd like 20 years longer than their tariff inside, um, sometimes been in segregation for many months or even years. Um, so they're not going anywhere fast. It was a high secure prison and typically what would happen is the prisoner would work their way down through the levels of, of security by demonstrating that they've reduced their risk with people increasingly giving them a bit of a vote of confidence and putting a little bit more trust in them. So no... Uh, Although we had a, we had a, occasionally had somebody who was serving a determinant sentence uh, sentence where they'd get out automatically, that wasn't the norm for us. The vast majority of people were people who had to jump through a lot of hoops before anyone would would trust in them to get out. Mm. What do you? What has been like the main driver for this psychopathy? Because I mean, if these people are psychopaths mm -hmm. and they're experiencing, was it? Do you think it's like drugs? Was it childhood abuse? Is that sort of thing genetic? I don't really. It's a good. It's a good question because a lot of people would would argue about the the genetics of it. That the people are born with a brain that's that predisposes them to be callous and 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 have a lack of empathy. But you can't get away from the fact that in prison, I've never worked with somebody who didn't have a very abusive childhood. Mm. So you can't say that that doesn't count and I have worked in less secure settings so medium secure settings with people who'd perhaps committed slightly less offences less serious offences but what you see is you get more and more into the realms of security within within institutions you see more and more brutality and I think the thing that really stood out for me when talking to the men about their their experiences of childhood was the men 
often felt like their parents hated them and wanted them dead. Mm. And that wasn't the experience that, that I heard from people in a medium secure setting, you know, or a less, a less, um, less secure prison. There you might hear, you know, dad was very violent, mum wasn't very loving or was maybe also violent. But when you get into a high secure setting with people who are psychopaths, what you're seeing is people who every adult they came into contact with as a child treated them in a very brutal way um so it's, in my mind they've learned there's no point to having feelings because all feelings do is make the situation more difficult for you um and i think often with psychopaths we we assume that their violence is instrumental violence that it's just there to achieve something but uh, whereas i think most of us could even if it's something we'd never do you could relate to losing your temper in an argument and lashing out um whereas when you look at the behavior of somebody who's psychopathic it can look like it's been done in a very cold calculated way but often there is an anger underneath there so somebody might have insulted them in some way and what they've done is harbored that resentment and it's festered and then somebody who reminds them of that original hurt you know looks at them the wrong way or says something and then they get the they bear the brunt of this like really cold hard hard anger so they're triggered that's our new yes that's our yes new word yes for, they're triggered yeah new nomenclature yeah. so what does it mean though for that because does life mean life in this country because i know in the states it doesn't always mean life no we do have there's a very small number of individuals serving um a whole life sentence but there's very i mean there's there's actually been more of them as time over the last 10 years with a more um a more harsh government there's been um there's been more of these sentences but the vast majority of people in britain who are serving a life sentence they're given a tariff which is the minimum amount of time they have to serve so um and tariffs have got longer as well so when i first started working in prisons if you killed your wife for instance the chances are you'd get 10 or 12 year tariff you'd have to serve that and then if you'd proven that you weren't a risk you'd get a chance to to get released but for most people they'd be serving longer than their tariff mm. um, but very occasionally you get somebody um, like Michael Stone who killed Lynn and Megan Russell he got a, a whole life tariff which is basically 50 years um, so you're, you're not going to get out if you if you serve that kind of tariff. So these guys let's just say for the sake of argument they are going to get out in 20 years time, mm -hmm. and they've spent x amount of years in solitary confinement which my understanding is impossibly brutal on the brain mm -hmm. the psyche just can't yeah cope with that why do you think we still use something like that it seems like we should have come up with something more uh less damaging i don't, I don't know how else to put it because if you want to reintroduce these people into society Putting them under like impossibly challenging conditions seems like a really bad idea. Well, you're highlighting the nonsense of the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. and I think if we were to sit down now and plan what does what does a good justice system look like in terms of reducing reducing risk and reducing crime, we wouldn't come up with what we do have. Um, so I've forgotten your question now. I've... Being uh, in solitary. Yes, yeah. it's detrimental to their, you know, their recovery. Yeah, be, yes, be, yeah, being in solitary mm -hmm. confinement doesn't help at all. But I think there's something about 
society where we want people to be punished and actually removing the deprivation of liberty is the punishment it's not supposed to be what happens in prison but joe public your daily mail and what you see is people clamoring for harsher conditions and for a long time actually in the in the british prison system prisoners had those you know the really old-fashioned tvs the heavy tvs and those were more expensive than flat screen tvs because flat screens with ten a penny, but the government was still having to buy these old-fashioned, heavy TVs because of the outcry that would be there if Joe Public got wind of the fact that people have flat-screen TVs. So it's actually costing <laughs> costing more for for no reason whatsoever. So yeah, uh, prison is hard, and actually, if you. Uh, People who go to prison, typically, they feel like they don't belong in society. Society's not interested in them. And then what we do is stick them in a hole where we're not, you know, we just reinforce that that impression. If you want people to obey society's rules, you need them to feel like they're part of society, like they belong. And when people, if you listen to the accounts of people in prison who've turned their lives around, and there are people who've done amazing things and gone on to be really inspirational later, but it's always because they've had, you know, developed a relationship with somebody, maybe there's a prison officer who trusted in them, who saw some good in them, encouraged them. The, the kind of things that you want from a parent as a child, you know, you want some encouragement you want somebody to see that you've got worth you've got value and you want that reinforced whereas when we give people messages that they're they're worthless they're just a piece of shit is it any surprise that they leave prison and they're still angry and you know aren't going to be aren't going to be reformed right do you has there ever been uh capital punishment in the uk yes yeah i mean it was it was um it was outlaws before i before I, before I was born, actually, um, with I think because there'd been quite a few miscarriages of justice, um, but the, the British public, when they ask the British public if they would like to bring back the death penalty, it tends to be slightly in favour of bringing the death penalty back. So I'd hate for that to be a subject of a referendum, for mm. instance. Um, but yeah, when we when you see actually how often there are miscarriages of justice, it's it's not worth it for. The, <laughs> even if it's only a very small proportion of, of people that, that might be executed. But also, it's like we, we condemn people for killing others, rightly so, um, but actually we would take away someone's life in a very cold, dispassionate way. Does that, you know, surely that makes us no better than, than they are. Now, what about the people that, I understand a lot of people, there was a, a group, called like the Innocence Project, I think, in the States, where they're constantly uh, proving that people yes. aren't guilty on death row. Yeah. But what about these people that clearly did it? Mm -hmm. Like They admit that they did it. They stood there with the hatchet in hand. What do we do with those people? Because there's an argument for, well, like you said, it's not humane to kill them. An eye for mm -hmm. an eye doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But then there's another argument that says, I have to spend X amount of dollars to keep this person alive for the next 30, 40 years now versus just getting them out of here. Well, what you could do, what you could do is invest in them to help them become somebody that can can pay something back to society. And I have seen people who've committed horrendous crimes totally reform themselves and you know you can see that they've got they've got something to offer i think we send too many people to prison i don't see the point in sending people to prison for short sentences if they're not a risk 
to the public. They don't do any treatment of any any value while they're in there. Um, so all we're doing is taking them off the streets for a few weeks, maybe months, um, probably dislocating them from their family. If they did have a job, they've probably lost it. And so then they're just going to be more of a drain on the state when they get out. Actually, we would save a lot of money if we sent a lot less people to prison and just reserved it for the people who are dangerous. And then we could make sure that what we offered to people in prison was something that was really of value and was going to help them change. But the other thing we know is that restorative justice, where people have to take responsibility in a, in a much more personal way and engage with victims or victims groups, we know that that's actually better for victims than a harsher punishment. Harsh punishments and the death penalty often don't leave people, don't leave the victims satisfied actually. It leaves that sense of anger and bitterness there. It doesn't disappear. Um, whereas actually when when people start having conversations and start understanding why things happened and having to take, be accountable, then I think that makes a massive difference to both both parties. Maybe they should do something like they do in the mafia instead of like taking the offender and putting them into prison. Like we're gonna like kill your wife if you do this. <laughs> that gives <them> more <laughs> that sounds a bit drastic. <laughs> <laughs> to not do something bad because someone you love is going to be hurt as a result. I'm only I'm only kidding. Um, what has been like? the best part of what you do because you probably have seen it all have you ever been scared like sitting down with some of these people yeah anyone who said anyone who says that they're not frightened in prison is not being honest because it's impossible not to be frightened prison only works because people are behaving themselves so you'll see one one officer escorting i don't know maybe eight people who've all killed or raped, escorting this group of eight prisoners through the prison. That's only working because the prisoners are, are choosing to, yeah. to do what they're supposed to do. But, you know, the, the, the reality is people do kick off and lose their temper. And the, the people that I worked with, with the diagnosis of, you know, personality disorder and psychopathy, were people who were very impulsive and lost their tempers very quickly. I've been called more names than I would care to, care to repeat. I've you know, being shouted at, sworn at. But actually, some, some of the times when I've been most frightened, it's not been the risk of physical aggression. It's been the dripping, sinister um, malevolence that's, that's come through. I sat running a group with somebody who was referring to me as a black widow spider. and But the contempt and disdain was just oozing mm. out of him. Um, so, and, and I've also obviously heard, you know, when you do an assessment as a psychologist, you quite often you have the photographs from the the scene of the crime there, so you see the you see the dead bodies, you read these awful details of these horrendous horrendous crimes, and um, that of course you know is disgusting, it's upsetting. Um, so you get all of that. But I've also run groups with men who, at the start of treatment, were saying, we're all loners, why, why are you making us sit in a room with one another? We can't, what have we got to learn from each other? Don't want to be here. And then at year three of treatment, they're really supportive of one another, and they're saying, this is the first time in my life I've ever felt loved or cared for, and that's really moving. And you see people making these amazing transformations from very angry, frightened people, where their eyes are out on stalks because they're so hypervigilant, to actually having a sense of peace about them, 
wanting to engage in restorative justice, sometimes also confessing to further serious crimes. You know, I've known, uh, known men um, confess further crimes to the police that have brought further further life sentences. There was nothing, they didn't need to confess to those crimes. No one was ever going to catch them for it. But to me, that's a sign of the person trying to do right. And those sorts of things are really moving, actually. Um, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked there for 17 years if it was all fear, disgust, shame, humiliation. But, you know, it's, the, it's those other moments that, that have made the work, work really worthwhile. What did Black Widow Spider Guy do? Do you remember? It was a violent crime of, so he's, he's, yeah, violent, violent crime. Um, yeah. Armed robberies. Because that's a weird thing to call somebody, that a black widow is usually a sexual thing. It is, but well, he he was sexually abused by women, actually, and I think that's that's part of the work that I think was I didn't expect when I went into it. I, I knew a lot of them would have have histories of abuse. I thought most of the sexual abuse would be by men, and of our population, over sixty percent had been sexually abused. But of those, over fifty percent had been sexually abused by a woman and a woman in their own right. And most of the men in the service when I first went there had raped or murdered a woman, which would tell you they've probably got issues with women right um as opposed to if they were choosing men to offend against um so you know we would give them a female therapist they might not have looked we you know they'd come to us and it was saying not to be left alone with a woman but it's like actually that man if all he's having to do is interact with men wouldn't look that dangerous but actually get him where he's got to sit in a room with a woman and then you see the anger you know it's just seething out of out of him oh that's interesting what was it like during, were you still doing in face-to-face -face stuff like when COVID was going on or was it all done? No, to start, at the start of the pandemic, um, like instantly, all of that sort of stuff stopped. Mm. Um, so we, what we, what, and the prisoners were locked up basically for 23 hours a day for, for months and they would get allowed out for exercise and a shower and so we would go out onto the exercise yard and we'd talk to them while they were out on the on the exercise yard um and that went on for a long time they did eventually introduce um sessions uh, therapy sessions back but i'd i'd left by that point in time hmm. they had like a lower infection rate at least in the u.s um, in the prisons, the prison. did they? <laughs> I, well, I don't think that was true for the. I don't think that's true for the prison system because I'm, I got COVID in March, right, twenty twenty, and right. literally it just ran through the unit in terms of the staff, did it, the staff okay. groups, yeah. And I think because like prisons weren't a priority for masks, so we got masks because we worked for the health service, but the prison officers didn't get masks, and actually the the governors of the prison were asking us not to wear masks because it was. It was agitating the prison officers who felt they weren't being looked after. We were getting the masks, and they weren't—they weren't being looked after. Masks. Uh, that went on for a long time, and then they introduced doing temperatures at the at the gate. <laughs> but by that point, there'd already been lots of—I mean—and there were at the prison that I worked in, there were a couple of people who were very seriously unwell. One man who was in um, intensive care for for a very, the ICU, sorry, for a very long, very long time. Mm. Well, we found out that the well. I don't know if we found out, but research indicates that the masks didn't even really work anyway. So there was really no point in even wearing the stupid mask. And um, it's really funny to look back at all that now. Like, just was it two years ago where all that 
weirdness kicked off. Well, it's 2020, so it's coming so up it's to three. three. three yeah, yeah I know. Too. Yeah, that's wild. It's just so strange. Like the prisons, I would have thought would have been the one place where they would have been trying to look out for their staff because they're enclosed and they're not medical people at all. But for them not to have masks, how did they rationalize that? I think just because they couldn't get hold of, they just couldn't get hold of enough masks. So I don't think it's that they were against against it. They couldn't get hold of enough of them. And of course, in prisons, you're quite often having to breach social distancing norms because to pass, you're passing along a very narrow oh, corridor on the on the outside on on the um, inside. And then also, I mean, the prison that I worked in has quite high ceilings because it was quite spacious. But some prisons, there's there's a real massive lack of ventilation. Isolation. Um, you know, in the when I used to work in Leeds Prison, you'd walk in in the morning, you could literally smell everyone's morning breath would hit you. It was disgusting. Yeah, uh, because there wasn't there wasn't the flow of air. So I, God knows what it was like working in those sorts of sorts of prisons. And of course, you're having to touch stuff all the time. You're like constantly touching gates um, and railings. Mm. So the idea that you're going to prevent the, the spread of something that's highly infect, infectious under those kind of conditions you know it just laughable yeah but but the, the other thing is that though that covid did do which was helpful is it actually um enabled technology within the prison service so the prison service is always hidden behind um security that's that's the obstacle to anything whereas of course because visitors weren't able to go in to visit they had to then embrace technology and introduce um, well, the equivalent of like a Zoom call mm. for prisoners. Um, so all of a sudden, all these things that had been impossible for the prison service to offer it previously, all of a sudden became a possibility. So uh, that's made a massive difference to things like lawyers who would normally have to spend a whole day travelling to go and do a legal visit to a prisoner, then being able to do like two or three visits during the course of a day because they just sat at their desk right. doing it. So right. it's, it's amazing what COVID has enabled. Um, at the same time as all the detriment that perhaps came with it as well. Uh, well, all that's going to change anyway with the implementation of artificial intelligence. So we won't we won't have jobs much longer as it is. I'm hoping as a psychologist that that my job will, <laughs> given I'm dealing with emotional mm. emotional currency, which seems a lot harder for AI to to get to grips with. But you know, you can see how online therapy you know people are already having therapy from bots where they're engaged in like text chat so you can see how it how it's possible um and if a bit like when you want help on a on a on a website or whatever, right. and, the, and the bot comes up you find yourself saying please and thank you even though it makes not a blind bit of difference because you're talking you're talking to a gadget mm. so. yeah, no, yeah no i always just type agent immediately like agent agent, agent. Yeah. <laughs> i refuse to talk to the chat bot uh -huh. forget it um, um, yeah, I, was they, I was watching something where they had, where they had pictures of like people at a party that were AI they weren't even real and they looked like real people they looked like real people like having fun but they had you know like too many teeth or you know like six seven fingers or something like that so I don't know we'll see soon I don't know how long any of us will have jobs but hopefully uh we'll have some sort of creative outlet to 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 uh express ourselves you have a podcast i do have a podcast it's called locked up living and it's an exploration of aspects of organizational culture that can be quite toxic and ways to overcome them
how's the podcast going? How long has it been? We started it in January 2021, so we've been going for two years, mm -hmm. which is amazing because myself and my co-host, both hobbyists, no background in anything to do with audio whatsoever. And I remember posting my first podcast up and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die of embarrassment. And I would have taken it down if it had just been me. But we've had really nice feedback, got encouraged to submit to the podcasting awards um, last year. And so, yeah, we're still, we're still going. Um, and still managing to still carry on doing it as long as I'm managing to have conversations that I think are really interesting with nice people. So. I think that's easier for somebody like yourself because it's your job to talk to people. Yes. So to yeah. do a podcast, it's a podcast is really just talking. I mean, as long as you have something interesting to say, it should be fairly engaging and fluent. Um, it should be. That's that's because you're an actor and you're comfortable putting yourself out there. But if you're if you're more of an introvert, the visibility can feel very uncomfortable. And so, so many people that we invite on our podcast are like, "Oh my god, I can't do this." Mm. They're always brilliant, of course, because they've got really interesting things to talk about. But there is a real anxiety for people of being in the spotlight and having that bit of visibility and anxiety about what other people are going to think about what they say but I kind of think with podcasts it's a bit like eavesdropping on a really interesting conversation in the you don't expect the conversation to be perfect it doesn't even really matter I don't think if the sound quality dips up and down no, it during the matter. course stop it <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the one important thing about your podcast that's the well that's the that's always. the bit that's the bit we can't do very well so maybe that's my rationalization for it but no fix that I would, yeah. I have turned, there's a podcast that I watch and the guy's brilliant. Like uh -huh. he's a very smart guy, uh -huh. but he talks about stuff that I, I'm not hearing anywhere else. Right. Uh -huh. Um, and his audio is atrocious. Like mm -hmm. I have to turn it off. Like I can't watch I it. Really, it's that right? bad. Yeah. And it's a shame because I really want to listen yeah. to what this guy has yeah. to say. And they're using different types of mics and you know, mm -hmm. you can't do that. You can't mm -hmm. have somebody on, you know, like a road mic and then somebody else is on a, on a lapel mic. It just, it, oh, okay. it doesn't work uh -huh. usually because the levels, as long as you have like a good mixer, you can mm -hmm. mix it in, but their sound engineer doesn't know what she's doing. Mm -hmm. So it does. Uh, well, I'm going to have to pick your brains about my setup then, but it would be helped if I had a better internet connection. Actually, that's the, yeah, that's the know. downfall for my, um, yeah. my podcast is, is I can't rely on zoom maintaining a stable link for the whole the whole time no zoom is zoom is tough for the internet is in this area is tough mm. so yeah sort your audio and you're and you're winning almost every time it doesn't always everything's dying over there i don't know why <laughs> everything stops so all right um so your podcast what kind of people do you usually have on on your show so like if people want to tune in and listen, what are they going to see? So we had a lot of people talking about crime in prison. So we had criminologists, psychologists, um, but we've also spoken about elite boarding schools a few times. We've spoken about sport. So really looking at kind of like aspects of industry that are more challenging, the things that people find difficult um, rather than the glossy side of of things, but also things to do with well-being. Um, spoken a lot about emotion on the podcast, as you might expect from a psychologist and a psychotherapist. Um, yes, it's 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 been good, good experience. Great, you're you're moving into hopefully into sports 
you were saying off yes air. yes so i've i have worked i've been working with um a few people who that happens to have been their background and i thought well actually i feel like a contribute something useful from a mental health point of view but also I mean you've probably seen all the the press about wayward athletes they do tend to hit tend to hit the um the front pages and to be honest that that saddens me because I think some of those things should be coming to attention way before there's an impact on other people the person's clearly got issues that they need to resolve and actually sports perhaps letting people down by not addressing them earlier yeah, there was actually a guy that I know, well, I don't know him personally, personally, but we I interviewed him, and he's in L.A., and he was starting a business like that, but it was uh -huh. for boxers. Uh -huh. and, and I thought it was interesting because we see these people on TV, and now they're famous, and, you know, they're good at a sport, and we expect them to behave a certain way, and because they're on a team, and yes. et cetera, et cetera, but... A lot of times, these kids, and they're kids, they're 19, 20 years old, they're coming from bad backgrounds, you know, but they were just good at running a football or, you know, throwing throwing a baseball yep. or whatever the case may be. So now we've given someone with bad tendencies millions of dollars. Yep. <laughs> and we're like, now you have to behave where you've had no money, and now you can go and do anything you want with less consequences absolutely nailing it there and that you know that i think quite often this sport has been the thing that got the person through you know all of their emotional regulation how they managed to have a cope with with life has all been channeled through their relationship to this sport so then you throw in an injury or retirement which of course comes really young for mm -hmm. athletes and then they you know what are they left with afterwards plus all the pressure and i don't know about all sports but certainly if you look at um soccer in the uk you know that boys have like you know are leaving home at sort of 13 or 14 and going to live in other cities with host families they're they're away from the family environment but in a an environment where they haven't got the real parents they're looking out for them and i think we micromanage them they're institutionalized in terms of someone tells them what what to eat, where to be, where to go, what to do. And then we wonder why they can't run their lives effectively right. um, as adults. You know, they're, they're really still behaving like teenagers. Mm, yeah, that's tough. That's Not all tough. of them, obviously. You do, yeah. You've got amazing role models like Marcus Rashford, for instance, campaigning for social justice, but that's not all of them. No, I'm sure it's the majority of them aren't like yeah. that at all. So, um, Naomi Murphy, ladies and gentlemen, go check out our podcast. Thanks Thank for joining me. Thanks very much, Vaughn. These ones or these ones? It's all an episode of Intervention. And I know I'm fine. Illinois, Mr. Robert Bobby McNeely. He is going to join us tonight. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Elaine Zhang. And today I am here with Eli Seal, documentary filmmaker. I need more. Welcome to The Only Way is Linda. Today, I have a really special guest here. 